Okay, so we have a little time. <laughs> I'll get the words out first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, mindfulness of the body is the first foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is, you know, very much dedicated to the development of insight. It's the kind of primary roadmap of insight meditation. And so mindfulness of the body is, is undertaken in a whole lot of different ways, but clearly it's emphasized within the four postures of sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Now, I think John and I are in agreement is, is far too much is made of these kind of clear-cut divisions between this pathway, that pathway, concentration, insight, Brahma Viharas, whereas actually these elements, of course, are interwoven through all of the practices. But a lot of whether it's concentration practice or insight practice uh, really relies a lot upon intention. Okay, so if you were using walking meditation as a concentration practice, it's a little bit like using mindfulness of breathing or Brahma Viharas as a concentration practice. So the intention as a concentration practice is that you really just, you make, say, your footfall, your chosen object, and you just come back, you come back, you come back, and you're not very interested in where you go when you're not there. So it's really about sustaining the attention on a single object. That's the kind of definition of concentration practice. Um, if you were to approach walking meditation as an insight practice, your sense of intentionality would change so that the times away from your footfall would be actually equally important as the times with your footfall because it's actually much more uh, insight practice is by nature inclusive of all phenomena. So it's bringing a, an attentive element to the... It's actually bringing the same mindfulness to the times away from the footfall as the times with the footfall. So if you recognize that when you're moving away from your footfall or your breathing or your Brahmavahara phrases, of course, you really are being drawn away to something that has become more predominant in your experience. It might be a sound, might be a thought, might be a body sensation elsewhere, might be a sight, but you're being drawn to something that is arising from one of the classrooms of mindfulness into the field of your attention. Now, as an insight practice, you are as mindful as you can be of that arising. You're as mindful as you can be of your relationship to that arising. You're as mindful as you can be of the nature of that arising. So those three things, I would say. So you're mindful of what your attention is drawn towards. You're mindful of your relationship to it, which broadens you into the whole field of you know, the hindrances, craving, aversion, delusion, and you're mindful of the nature of it increasingly, which is changing, which is born of conditions, and which is empty of any enduring self. So that would kind of cover the field of insight meditation, but you, you kind of like don't approach all of that as a project, it's a kind of experiential investigation. So it's not a conceptual checklist. You know, what's arising? What's my relationship to it? You know, Anicca Dukkha Nata. You know, it's not a conceptual checklist. It becomes much more of an experiential investigation. But the primary piece here is bringing an equality of mindfulness to all moments. Sometimes 
This is always an interesting question because I think a lot of practices get taught in uh, very much more of a concentration fashion. That's easier. I mean, it's a lot easier to do because, um, as Christina says, you're being directed to bring the mind almost immediately back to whatever the object is, whether it's the soles of your feet or your footfall or the breath. Um, and there's a definition, actually there's an Abhidharma definition of what concentration practice is. And that definition is to be able to hold an object without discursive thought. That's exactly what, that, that's pretty well what it is. Um, in very high stages of concentration, we talk about a kagata, which is one point of concentration, you know, where the mind is wholly absorbed in that object. And that's pretty well the same as what's implied by the Abhidharma definition. Whereas in what we're calling insight practice, or you know, strictly vipassana, um, what is it being, um, the definition that we find within the Abhidharma is slightly different because it says the ability to hold an object with directed thought. That's the curiosity, that's the interest that we bring to where the mind has gone when it's drifted. Yeah, so we're actually beginning to investigate. But this is, when I say investigation and inquiry, I don't mean an intellectual investigation or inquiry or what Christine is calling a checklist where you're actually uh, ticking off things. It's actually observing what is going on, beginning to observe what is going on. I mean, once, you know, when we go to, when we drift off, for example, um, one of the first things we might notice if we hold uh, where our mind has drifted correctly is that it arises and then it will pass away. There is an insight into impermanence. We don't actually have to label it as such, but we, the more familiar we become with that, the more we begin to see the impermanent nature of, for example, thought as it arises and passes away. Um, we can also, let's take the more, slightly more difficult part, we can also begin to observe that there is not self attached to that. There is no self in there. Um, and actually one of the refrains that runs in the Satipatthana Sutta is to say to, to view the body as body, to view feelings as feelings. In other words, not to view them as self. And so we begin to get an insight into the, the selfless nature of the phenomena that are arising in our experience. And in walking meditation, we're doing exactly the same when, we, when we're directing it in an insightful way as we're doing when we're observing the breath in the same way. We're actually really interested where the mind goes. Yeah, we're really interested in what it goes to. Uh, we're curious about it. We're curious about the phenomena, for example, even of the object that we're anchoring ourselves to. And in many ways, in Vipassana-type meditations, what we're using is the breath or the footfall as an anchor to return to, to stop the mind actually starting to then proliferate when we begin to look at it. So it's like your drifting boat. You've got your drifting boat every time so often. If it drifts too far, you've got to anchor it down. And that's what we're doing with using, with using the breath or the footfall, the actual object there. The question is, um, thought you missed the phrases for Karuna and Anukampa. We never said them, so. <laughs> All credit to your attention, you were there. <laughs> Bearing in mind there is no sacred list of phrases, okay? With Karuna and Anukampa, I actually tend to be a little more creative and more variable myself. Um, because it, a lot of it really rests upon almost the domains of dukkha that are being held. So say you are going to someone who's in the midst of some quite blameless struggle and suffering. I might be prone to use a phrases like, may you find ease of heart in the midst of this. May you find peace of heart in the midst of this. I think it is quite important to be quite careful with the phrases around Anukampa and Karuna that they're quite agenda-free. 
in the sense of, you know, may this go away. You know, because of course there is much distress and pain in this life that is not fixable. When you turn your attention, for example, towards a more difficult person, I think actually that, or, you know, someone who perpetrates suffering. Again, I think the same, there is the same need to be quite careful that the phrases are agenda-free. You know, may you be free of harshness, may you be free of cruelty, you know. It's kind of like where we're endeavoring to use the phrase as almost a mechanism of our shopping list of what we want to change in another person. So actually, you know, I might adjust the phrases in that domain personally. It's what I would do. And, you know, to address perhaps my capacity to to, to see the goodness in that person. You know, I, again, I might use, may you find, you know, may you find, be peaceful. It's a big one. It's very important to reflect on actually what is meant by the phrases, as we've talked about. May you be peaceful. Hmm? I may actually just go to one. I don't know how you would... I'd be pretty well the same. You, you, he, would, he would do the same. We haven't discussed this ahead of time. But, but because, the, because the domains in Anukampa Karuna really do vary, you know, quite considerably, I mean, to go from blame the suffering to a perpetrator of distress is a huge spectrum shift there. So I would actually adjust the phrases. So again, it's kind of like almost addressing what might be possible within those moments of distress and suffering, given the impossibility maybe of fixing them, what might be possible. May you find ease of heart. Actually, one of the ones that I tend to use is may you find freedom from distress because the distress is often causing you know, the difficult person to perpetrate, as we said this afternoon, some of the things that they do. So may you find freedom from distress, may you, may you find peace, and may you find contentment. Yeah. And again, it's fairly agenda-free, and, and like Christina, I think you have to be fairly creative with these phrases and tailor them. Ultimately, um, as I used to do on long retreats where we did uh, Metta Karuna, I would actually say to people, we'll use the phrases which are suggested for a while, then try to preserve the same sentiments, but keep them, keep it in your own voice. Try and put it in your own words. Because if you're going to be working with phrases for uh, a long while, if that particular type of approach appeals to you, then you really need something to be in your own voice, rather than a kind of outside voice, which actually can um, be quite jarring if the, if the language is not quite right. But it's worth working with those phrases in, in another voice for a little while to try and absorb the sentiment of what is actually being put across in, in the phrases themselves. And, and it is important, I think, in all of these, in all of the Brahmaharas, uh, to recognizing that the phrases are really concerned with the quality of a person's inner experience and not with the world of conditions. Because certainly, you know, particularly in the realm of, of you know, suffering, distress, chronic illness, pain, dying, these are the world of conditions, you know, that are not, not necessarily fixable, are going to go away. So it is really speaking to the world of inner inner experience and conditions and that person's capacity within the unsolvable, so to speak, sometimes. I wonder if you have suggestions, or if the teaching has suggestions, about how to cultivate uh, courage and fearlessness in the practice of Ankhapa. 
Well, I, I think there are. I mean, I don't think you would find explicit instructions, but I think, uh, you know, the, co the question is about cultivating courage and fearlessness, which is very much part of this Anakampa Karuna fabric. My own sense is it's not always about what we do, it's about what we don't do. You know, and perhaps what we don't do is flee, turn away, um, cower, hide our heads, pretend it's not happening. You know, so I, I feel a lot of the whole cultivation of compassion lies within our willingness to turn towards the actuality of dukkha and have enough confidence inwardly that our hearts can tremble without being, without drowning, without drowning. So, you know, with, with, with this domain, I, I think there's a lot of kindness that is needed in that because it's very important to keep a finger on our own pulse of capacity, which will differ in different times, different moments even. So I think partially it's about what we don't do. It's a kind of a commitment to not following what feels like the easier pathways of, you know, just pretending something that's going on or not or avoiding it. But keeping, you know, keeping aware of our own sense of capacity and resources is very, very important and very much in the way that metta is interwoven. We need to be aware of the moments when we are being overwhelmed. This may be a time to return to metta. It might be a time to return to the cultivation of joy. Actually, not the cultivation of joy, the making room for joy that we'll talk much more about tomorrow. There are times when it's very wise to step back. You know, if we feel that sort of sense of being in danger of drowning, it's very important, actually, to step back. Not saying to distress, not this, not ever, but not this, not now. I, I think sometimes, you know, we can have such a mantra about mindfulness of, you know, stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, that it's not taking into consideration that changing field of inner resources. So some, sometimes stepping back is just saying not this, not now knowing that we actually need, it, it, it's an act of compassion, it's an act of kindness to step back and regather those inner resources. So it's not a denial of, of the extremely painful, the extreme distressing. But perhaps I've never ever found this very much value in being engulfed by distress. Mostly it undermines confidence, mostly it increases fear of going there, so, the, you know, courage is a lot of things. Sometimes courage is the capacity to step back. It's that kind of inner respect. It's about what we don't do. It's about garnering our, or, or growing our sense of capacity. And I think this is where mindfulness is so interwoven with the Brahma Viharas because, you know, mindfulness is capacity. It's a training. It's a capacity in steadiness. It's a capacity in our capacity in, in our ability to turn towards, but certainly a training. So all of those things, I would say. One of the things that's very clear from the early early texts is that there's this quality of courage, which is actually I think I mentioned the other day, the sort of heroism is actually in the quality of the effort that you bring to the practice, you know, what I think Christina saw was the kind of the ability to show up there um, in the midst sometimes of distress, not overwhelming distress, I totally agree with what she says. There is that, again, protective awareness which knows when actually this is not the right time to be dealing with, you know, say, a trauma or something like that and to step back from it. But it's that it, the quality of, of courage and energy are very interrelated here is, is very much shown in, actually, again, one of the other supports within the, um, within the seven supports towards awakening, which is actually the bhajangas, and this is virya. Virya is usually translated as energy, but it actually has a root which is, is rooted in, in heroism. 
you know, um, that actually when we deal with the difficult stuff, when we're showing up um, to observe what is there and to be really present for it, in that there is a quality of heroism. We don't have to develop anything else other than, the, than what I call a directed energy in what you're doing. Um, it's also there within right effort in the Eightfold Path. Uh, in the ability to restrain and develop and to observe what is there, you know, to let drop what is unwholesome, to develop what is wholesome, both arisen and unarisen, you know, in terms of what is wholesome, and to let drop what has, hasn't yet arisen in terms of the unwholesome and what has arisen in terms, of, in, uh, in terms of the unwholesome. So it's very much there in the quality of the energy that you bring to, to the practice itself. It's not separate. It's not something else. It's not a, not a whole set of separate instructions. It's actually there in balanced, balanced effort and energy, um, which we bring to the practice. Okay, let's uh, try and sum that up. So there's a question about the emptiness teachings. Um, the questioner is actually involved in emptiness teachings and uh, using it as a practice and really wanting to know how the Brahma Viharas, the emptiness teachings and the Heart Sutra fit in the Buddha's teachings in the, probably the development of the Buddha's teachings. Well, the first thing to say is that the Brahma Viharas is most definitely something the Buddha taught in terms of, you know, we can look at the early canon both in the Pali version and its equivalent in the Chinese version, uh, which is of a translation from Sanskrit, and we find pretty well an overlap of all of the early teachings. There's a very much a correlation between what is in this Chinese translation of, a Sanskrit te- of the Sanskrit texts and what is in the Pali canon. What we find there is certainly the Brahma Viharas. We find the same thing as the Tivija Sutta, which is this Sutta which deals with the Brahma Viharas in the long discourses. The emptiness teachings, as I possibly discern that you're talking about, them really arise much, much later than the Buddha. Yeah, much, much later. The Buddha speaks about emptiness, but in a very, very different way in the, in the Pali Suttas. Uh, and in the arguments, in the Chinese arguments. And most of these teachings develop on the cusp of the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century in terms of historical development. And um, in some senses, there's an attempt by somebody called Nagarjuna, some, most of you have probably heard of him, uh, Nagarjuna, to try and recover the original purport of the Buddha's teaching. And what he was particularly concerned about, and we don't need to be concerned about, but what he was concerned about was how Buddhist practice was sliding off both into forms of eternalism and nihilism. Something always existed and something went completely out of existence. So he's very, very much concerned in that. Those are the Scylla and Cribbides, by the way, of all Buddhist thought. You know, as soon as you say something, it almost implies eternalism, and then you try and negate it, which means you end up in nihilism. So it's it's a very, very difficult uh, balance to hold. Uh, But Nagarjuna was very particular about trying to dispel the notion of anything eternal. Um, his, His means of doing so was through the notion of emptiness. It's a horrible word, emptiness. I really don't like it. <laughs> it sounds so sterile. <laughs> uh, and people end up with a very nihilistic position simply because of hearing that word. 
uh, itself. I don't have a good replacement for this one, by the way. Um, but it's a terrible word in the sense of implying uh, all sorts of things which is really not there in what Nagarjuna and others who follow him afterwards is really implying, which is really the absence of anything like intrinsic existence, anything which is essential existence. And in many ways, the teachings on emptiness can be seen as a direct um, outcome of the Buddha's teachings on anatta. Yeah. He mentions Shunya within the early Pali text, but he doesn't talk about it in the same way as Nagarjuna does, because Buddhist thought has come on a long way since the Buddha's death, and it's got into all kinds of metaphysics by this time. I don't want to get into too much history, by the way, but um, you know, to answer this question, I have to deal with a little bit of it. Um, and so when he teaches the teaching of, of emptiness, really what he's teaching is something which is uh, a direct outcome of this teaching of Anantar, except spread a lot more widely. So instead of just saying, this self lacks any fixed existence, you know, you, me, every, every one of us, lack any fixed essence of John, or whoever you may be, you know, so too does every phenomenal object in this world lack any fixed existence. And actually, emptiness is really easy, because that's the end of the story. You know, I mean, Tibetans have uh, what I call much ado about nothing. <laughs> In the sense that they get into these vast philosophical debates about something which is not, um, not actually that complex. Because what Nagarjuna is simply saying is if we um, look at phenomena, if we really investigate them, we find lack of any essence within that particular object. And in other words, what he says, when the word empty is used, it's a qualifying statement. It says, this object, this person, is empty of any fixed existence. End of story. The Heart Sutra, um, historically, is not taught by the Buddha. It's probably Chinese and translated into Sanskrit at some point in time. Um, that's just from a scholarly point of view. Uh, it's very, very influential, um, in, you know, in, particularly in the East Asian world and particularly in the Tibetan world. It's a hugely influential text, not very influential in India, interestingly enough, um, historically. The Brahma Viharas, so we can say definitely the Buddha taught. In many senses, Nagarjuna's teachings on emptiness are an outcome of the Buddha's teaching about Anatta, and the Heart Sutra is probably roughly around about the same time as Nagarjuna. I mean, some scholars even thought that Nagarjuna might have written it at one time, but I don't think that is the case. Um, so there's kind of historical development out of that. Um, but by the time we get to the first and second century, it's got a long way from the practical teachings of the Buddha. It's got into philosophy. Yeah. Um, something the Buddha was very, very uh, careful to eschew in engaging in any philosophical debates whatsoever. One could say that. I'm sure Christine's got something to add to this as well. I mean, it's <laughs> getting into a bit. Okay, then. <laughs> I, I mean, in many cases, yes, it can. I mean, I think this is, I mean, one of the things of Nagarjuna's teachings which is very, very powerful. He literally leaves you nothing to grasp after. That's the whole point of the teaching of emptiness. Whenever you're saying, I'm, you know, whenever you're in a, in a practical situation of grasping after something, you know, the teaching of emptiness is actually saying, well, what exactly are you grasping after? There is no thing to grasp after. You know, there is no fixed essence within anything. And actually, um, his greatest teaching, if you want a quick summation of it, is that dependent origination, of course, if anything is dependently originated, has to be empty. Because if it depends on something else for its existence, it cannot have intrinsic existence. And therefore, uh, anything is dependently originated is worthy of our metta and our compassion. 
And so actually, uh, again, it's a long story, so I won't get into it, but there, the, the whole point about it was that you could develop an ethics out of the teaching of emptiness, uh, an ethics that revolved not so much around the Brahma Viharas, but around particularly about the teachings around compassion. And you see this coming up in the works of Shantideva. I'm not going to say any more. <laughs> I sometimes have concerns around the creation of hierarchies of awakening and understanding that arise, arose, I think, post the Buddha's death and continue to arise very strongly, I think, in in realms of Western practice. You know, that this path of awakening is somehow kind of... that, that there's a hierarchy. I mean, the Buddha in the early, in many of the discourses, particularly in a, few, a couple of them, speaks of actually many doorways of awakening through the Brahma-viharas, and I think even sada or confidence is mentioned once, through understanding, voidness, non-self. The word voidness is used in translation. I don't know how accurate it is. Through the Brahma-viharas. So the Buddha taught, no, I didn't think it was. I don't think it's a very good word either. I think it's a very poor word. But... but um, so the Buddha talks about the many, many different doorways to some very core understandings, not to meditative states, but to some very core understandings, understandings which liberate, understandings which bring to an end the causes of suffering, which was entirely, if we might say, the Buddha's mission, if we might you know, put that forward, was concerned with dukkha and the end of for understanding. I think there's also ways in which the the whole teaching of anatta has become far too narrow, in my own sense, in, in that it becomes a kind of personal experience of non-self. And, you know, be very aware that we talk about non-self and not no-self. But there's ways in which that becomes a kind of meditative experience in rather than a deep understanding. And if you look at the ways in which sometimes the Buddha talked about non-self, actually his very classic way of teaching about non-self was actually to first to examine external phenomena. You know, those very classic teaching metaphors of taking apart the ox cart, you know, and, and is the wheel the cart, you know, is the axle the cart? No, 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 none of this is the cart. You know, the cart is a combination of these conditions. Um, and then applying that same understanding to the notion of me, you know, is my arm me, you know, is my fingernail me, is my hair me? No, actually what we see is a kind of notion of self, an idea of self built upon the aggregates that are clung to, a body, feeling, perception, attention, consciousness. So actually the Buddhist, uh, you know, this theme of, of non-self, of no enduring self-existence in anything, it actually runs through the whole of the Buddhist teaching. And actually I, I, I agree with John, I don't know why such a fuss is made out of something that is actually so evident. I just cannot understand it. You know, because we make such a big philosophical debate about it, whereas actually if you look in your own experience in a single day, you have probably have not found an enduring self anywhere today. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I personally am puzzled. I just get puzzled about why such a to-do is made out of something that's so obvious. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, it only takes a little contemplation, doesn't it? It doesn't take a lot of meditation. It actually just takes a little contemplation of, of just looking inwardly for a single hour, even. And we don't find any abiding, enduring self. We find lots and lots of different ideas about self. We find lots of views of self. We find lots of views based on shaping of an idea of self by conditions. Don't find anything central. So I completely agree with John. I just have, I'm just puzzled. 
why we have to have a thousand books on emptiness when they... <laughs> Just look at the clock. You cannot find an enduring clock. You find a, an, aggregate, an aggregation of conditions and process. So, you know, again, I, I think sometimes this is, this is put forward into some sort of very mystical mystical perspective, whereas in my understanding, this is just nuts and bolts of existence. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, if, if we can do a lot of clinging around it, I agree. And then we get into trouble. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, philosophically and teaching-wise, I, I think the Buddha was actually quite simple about this. It was actually quite straightforward. It wasn't metaphysical. It wasn't particularly complex. He was just kind of putting out how he saw things through examining his own mind and body experience. And he looked for a long time and couldn't find anyone home <laughs> in, in an enduring way. Um, I, Mm-hmm. So I mean, we can we get we get not only philosophically into great complexity, we get personally into great complexity, which is why actually we cultivate the path actually to dispel the complexity, and in many ways to see the elegance and actually, you, you know, we don't bypass the personal story. Obviously, I never met anybody who bypassed themselves on the way to liberation. So there's a lot of peacemaking to do along the way. It's a lot of inner peacemaking to do along the way, which is actually what, you know, not only the Brahma-Viharas, but the Paramis, many of the developments are actually concerned with peacemaking, with the way things are, you know, learning to put down the argument, the very skillful means that we have to put down the argument with the way things are. Um, but again, that, that that's not in the service of some... Um, uh, transcendent experience, it's in the service of transcending dukkha, optional dukkha. I mean, I think this is so important to actually just get clear in our own minds. I mean, we're not in the business of self-annihilation here. I'm really happy I know where I live. <laughs> I'm really happy I can get up from a sitting and I, I can go out in the car park and I know which car I'm driving and I should know where to go. And, and you know, I remember phone numbers even sometimes, you know. <laughs> and I even remember who I'm married to. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing. We will always have a self to navigate our way through this world, okay? So we're not in the business of any of that kind of eradication. What we're in the business of is eradication of clinging to view. It is clinging to view that solidifies me into a particular formation that is actually a prison. So one, one of the kind of first, you know, if you look at some of the maps of awakening, for example, you know, one of the maps of awakening when it talks about sort of stream entry and things like this, often talks about this road map of what drops away and what develops. One of the first things to really drop away is personality view, a view of self, a fixed view of self. Think of the gift of that. Think of the gift of seeing yourself as a fluid, unfolding, responsive, flexible being, you know, rather than I'm sad, I'm anxious, I'm extroverted, you know, I'm introverted. Think of the, the freedom of that. Now, personality view is very much embedded in place by clinging, by clinging to um, body, by clinging to feelings, by clinging to opinions, clinging to um, a whole lot of things. Um, 
so personality view becomes actually fixed in place by clinging. The work of mindfulness is to, to soften the glue. It's to soften the glue of clinging. Now, that, that doesn't mean you don't have a navigation self. It's good to have a navigation self. Hmm? Um, it's also useful not to have a definition of self cast in concrete. While we're on this topic, I think it's worth really um, staying here a second because it's... Um, such an important one, and one particularly the Buddha says, and both Nagarjuna says, actually, interesting enough, in you know, response to the previous question. He says, grasping anatta wrongly is like grasping a snake at the wrong end. It turns around and bites you. Yeah. Um, because we can so totally get the wrong end of the stick. You know, mixing metaphors furiously here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, so we can completely get the wrong end of the stick. And what the Buddha is interested in is actually in process. What he's really interested in is how this thing that we label a self operates. That's what he's interested in. I often hear that the five khandhas, for example, is what make up the self. No, it's not. The five khandhas are ways of looking experience. That somehow, that somehow are involved in the selfing process. Okay. <laughs> I might have to explain khandas, I'm just told. Uh, the khandas are usually what are usually referred to as the personality aggregates. Um, in other words, they're what's aggregated together. I don't know if you, this is a word that's familiar with you, but it's, it's what we join together. So all the physical processes, for example, are aggregated together under the notion of rupa. Uh, Body. Okay. <laughs> this is my translator, by the way. <laughs> uh, all of these physical processes are aggregated together under this notion of body, or actually physicality is a better way of saying Physicality is an enormous part of our experience of what it is to be a self. So we can actually concentrate actually on that experience itself. Equally so for all the other aggregates, of which there are four other aggregates. Um, there is the aggregate of feeling, which you will know, Vedana. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither. This is one really predominant aspect of, of our experience. It all comes with a hedonic tone. Yeah. Every experience we have is toned, usually into like, dislike, and don't even notice. Yeah. Basically, that's what it is. And I could go through all the rest of them, and, and just to give what the rest of them are, is perception, which is an enormous aggregate of, of experience, um, which is to do with all of the factors of memory and language and perceptual processes of discrimination. Yeah. Huge, actually. Um, and when I replied to a question, I think it was the other day, and said, you know, actually what's going on in misperception is we're applying past experience, and that's part of this this particular aggregate. Then there is the volitional formations. It's a terrible translation, actually, but these are sankharas. Uh, the sankharas are, again, the same root as um, some of the other things we've been using, like karuna, kriya, to do, to make something. We're making something constantly. Uh, this is the repository, if you like, of karmic activity. You know, karma, by the way, is not... Um, uh, an abstruse metaphysical term. It's just a very simple term that's used in Pali and Sanskrit to indicate action, activity. Karma is activity. We all engage in activity. All of the activities have consequences. Activities repeated become formations. They become habits, what I was talking about the other morning. And finally, there's the aggregate of consciousness. These are actually five ways that we can look at our experience as a human being. None of them are fixed. None of them are under our control whatsoever. You know, if our physical processes were under our control, whoopee. But they're not, are they? You know, um, we age. We get sick. This body does things you don't want it to do. Uh, light gets sick. Um, and equally so for the other. I mean, Vedana is coming in and out. It's fading in and out. Sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes it's unpleasant. 
experiences you've had in the past that have been pleasant will somehow shift into uh, indifferent and sometimes shift into pleasant you know, or unpleasant. So it's shifting around. It's not under our control. And equally so for all of the other cases. What this is showing is the process of selfing. Yeah. That is what the Buddha in, is interested in. Almost the question of, is there a self or isn't there a self, is a metaphysical question. Buddha says, I'm not interested. Yeah. That's philosophy. I want to know how what we call a person works. You know? um, in that sense, again, he's very, very, very revolutionary. He's, he's the first process thinker. Yeah. All of our mental stuff is process. All of this notion of being a self, being a personality, is not being a fixed personality and not being a fixed self. It's not saying there is no personality and there is no self. What it's saying is there is nothing fixed within it. It can change, usually to the annoyance of your partners, by the way. <laughs> and it's changing, and this is actually good news that it is changing and can change. If you were a fixed self, say, for example, your essence was, I don't know, depressiveness. Gosh, what a burden that would be. It means I could never, ever possibly change. You know, if my essence was, I don't know, badness of some form, Mr., you know, somebody who's constantly of a criminal nature, you know, it would mean I couldn't possibly change. There could be no... Uh, there could be no liberation. We, you know, if that was the case, we might as well all go home. Um, there's no point in doing what we're doing. The whole point of the Buddhist teaching is predicated on the notion that the self is a process that can change if we nudge it in the right direction. Yeah? It's actually a very useful thing uh, to have a self. It's a very dangerous thing, like the snake held at the wrong end, to say to somebody who's got a very fragile notion of self, don't worry, you haven't got any self. Yeah, it's a really dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And so I think, I, I feel very passionate about this, you can probably gather, um, because I think if we get the wrong end of the stick here, we completely misinterpret the Buddhist teachings. Uh, we completely misunderstand the trajectory of what he's trying to get us to do, which is actually understand and hold this self in what I would call a, a useful way, not a destructive way. Not a self that is obfuscating all of our experience and cutting us off from others, but something that actually helps us to connect with others. Uh, I could go on, but I won't. <laughs>
Now, often the way that conceit of self or mana is talked about is the way that we position ourselves in relationship to others. Um, I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, I'm the same as you. That more unconscious positioning, relational positioning. Sort of sitting there and behind personality view. But my own sense is another way that mana manifests is this kind of more unconscious kind of um, sense of the pilot in the cockpit, the driver at the controls. Um, you know, I see everything changing. <laughs> You know, or I, I, you know, I might even be awareness. You know, so it's a kind of much, much subtler, unconscious, uh, subtler element of clinging to this kind of centrality of positioning, which is far less obvious in personality view. Which is probably why, in the grand scheme of awakening and relinquishing and unbinding, mana is one of the last ones to go. So I just want to throw that in the pot as just a bit of information. I'll try and keep this brief. <laughs> um, one of the things to say about the Buddha's understanding of the process is that you don't actually have to posit anything outside of the process itself as generating that process. In other words, it's like a closed system. You see this very much, and again, I'm not going to go into this because it really is a big topic. Uh, you see this very much in the Abhidharma understanding of the mind. Now, the Abhidharma was the extraction of all the Buddha's teachings put into a very, very formalized system. Um, and it's actually the, what's called the third part of the Tipitaka. There's the Vinaya, the Sutta, or the Suttanta, and the Abhidharma material in the Pali Canon. And this was true of all, every Buddhist tradition. And so this was the repository of Buddhist psychology, basically. And the idea was that you know, there was forms of consciousness involved with certain mental factors arising, and you didn't need anything other than these forms of consciousness to generate, uh, together with these mental factors, the whole notion of what we are as a person. Yeah. There is no what is classically referred to as homunculus in the head. I don't know if you, homunculus is the little man sitting in the head like the driver in the crane, you know, pulling all the levers. There's nothing else outside it. Awareness itself, or what we might call, you know, for example, sati is part of the process, um, as, is, um, as is attention, as is, for example, feeling. And we could list out all of these, and it's actually a closed circuit here where there's, like a computer, you don't actually have to generate something outside which is controlling all the functions within it. You know, the same with the human mind. It's a process. It's an interactive process that can generate the notion of a self. It can misfire and create the notion of something seemingly fixed. Yeah. Um, and that's a very simplistic answer. But what I'd say is there is no awareness overseeing the whole thing. Awareness is just part of, if you like, the, the system itself. I don't know if that's understandable without going into a lot more detail. But what I would want to add to that is, you know, the Buddha was very clear that none of this should be accepted as an ideology. Mm. Hmm? This is actually something to check out in your own experience. You know, it's, no, it's of li very limited value, for example, to accept non-self as a statement of belief or the teaching of process as a statement of belief or the question about whether there is something enduring or not as statements of belief. It's very, very important that this is actually really investigated within one's own experience, which is where, you know, which is what the practice is really, really, really dedicated to. Mm. Not in promoting belief systems or ideologies or creeds or anything like that, but actually really empowering people, having confidence in people to take those questions and let me see if that's true in my own experience. You know, don't accept the belief of non-self. Instead, find a self. You know, really go for it. You know, find yourself. Don't accept the teaching of, of impermanence and change. Go for finding what doesn't change. 
So, so it's really, really, the onus is really always placed within that direct experiential understanding and primarily investigation. You know, it's a bit of, you know, it's very, one of the most important factors of awakening to, to not have any kind of just blind acceptance. But, okay, those were important questions. Let me see what that looks like in my own experience. And also look for both, you know, the, 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 well, look at what upholds it, look at what doesn't uphold any question that I might pose to myself. But this, this is central. So far, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess my question is, I'm really feeling that intuitive, intuitive uh, uh, intuition when I bring it out into the real world, when I deal with people on a daily basis. And uh, it's, it's exciting. I mean, when, uh, I mean the, the word intuitive, you know, I mean, I'm not, I think I know what you mean by that, but you can tell me if I'm wrong. There are many things that that change as the mind comes to more stillness, um, that there is more insight. One would actually hope to, and actually more than hope, one would, one would actually have confidence that you know that which is unhelpful does begin to drop away. And of course, as there is more stillness inwardly, we have the capacity to to see more beneath the surface of things, more beneath the world of appearances. And, you know, sometimes we refer to that as kind of being more intuitive. But it's, it's being less caught by, by presentations and, and by the first appearances of things. Um, you know, I give you a very simple example. If, you know, if someone might be very angry with me when I have a lot of confusion inwardly, I would usually react with fear or anger. If there is a greater sense of equanimity and kindness, stillness inwardly, I may actually see beneath that anger to the heart. I mean, that's a very simple, very crude example. But there's this, always a simultaneous process going on, as far as I can see in the practice, that dropping away and emergence are simultaneous happenings. And, uh, in a releasing, the kind of calming and releasing of fear, of anxiety, of obsession, it, it's not a vacuum that's behind it, and it's not a vacuum that's before it. You know, that releasing is often really direct, well, is directly linked to the emergence of actually something more skillful and helpful, you know, like equanimity, like metta. It allows the dropping away. It's a little bit what I was talking about this morning around the conditions of falling, what falls away, and, you know, the conditions that support clinging. It's pretty much the same, you know, that there's always falling away in emergence in a kind of interwoven process. And, you know, the outcome of that, when one expects to see fruits from this practice. I was just going to say it is a, a process that I do experience. Yeah. And it's different in every situation. And one expects to see fruits from it. You expect to see more of a 
kind of an embodiment of the teaching in your own life. Okay, so that is our time, I regret to say. No, it just is our time. Um, so we have now, thank you again for your questions, you. your interest. Um, so uh, a little time for us to rearrange, so please go ahead. Um, so it's a walking period, and, and please, please try and engage with this latter part of the day. It's, it's helpful as part of the digestion process.